Do you ever find that there are times when you just have to ask why? Why does your nose run and your feet smell? Why, why do doctors call what they do practice? Why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? Why is it that when you transport something by car, it's called shipment, but when you transport something by ship, it's called cargo? Why isn't the word phonetic spelled the way it sounds? Why do tugboats push their barges? And finally, my personal favorite, why do they put braille dots on the keypad of the drive-up ATM? Sometimes you just have to ask the question, why? Why? That's the question that everyone asks at some point in their life, but often we ask it like this. Why is this happening to me, or why am I here? Really kind of questions regarding the meaning of life and the purpose of life, if you will. So, so what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Do you have an answer to that question? Because the way you answer that question will probably determine how you then live your life. If you think life is something you endure until you die, then that's how you will live. You will endure your existence until it is finally over. But if on the other hand you think life is a search for light and goodness and hope, then you will likely live in such a way that you will find light and goodness and hope. There was a Jewish psychologist named Viktor Frankl who discovered this um, during uh, his time in a concentration camp during World War II. So while seeking to survive the horror of his own imprisonment, he began to study his fellow <laughs> um, prisoners to see if he could come up with a coping mechanism that would help him endure this horrible experience that he was going through. This is what Frankl discovered. Those individuals who could not accept what was happening to them, who could not make their present suffering fit with their faith, they eventually despaired, lost hope, and eventually gave up and died. But those individuals that could find a meaning from their faith were then able to find hope for a future beyond their present suffering. They could accept what was happening to them as a part of their existence. They were able to survive. So what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Because if you don't have an answer to that question, the world will be very quick to give you one. You've all seen the bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. For some in the military, the motto is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. But in light of all the awful and tragic events that have happened in our country alone in the past 20 years, those reasons for living seem hollow and vain at best. So we, at, we must ask ourselves, are we offering our children and those followers of Christ who would come after us, are we offering them a faith that gives meaning to life, a faith and a life that is worth dying for, or simply a life that's really not worth living? In light of all the evil and the good that's in our world, how is one to discover the meaning of life? How is one to discover purpose in life? A meaning that can help us face all that comes our way, 
in this world on a daily basis? I think our text this morning can help us answer these questions. So we're gonna look at Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. And I'll read this for us, please feel free to follow along in your Bibles. But this is Matthew 22, 34 to 40 from the NIV, the New International Version. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So as you probably know, back in Jesus' day there were two religious groups of people, they the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they both claimed to know how to find the meaning of life. As good Jews, as the people of God, they turned to the scriptures to answer that question. So again, the first answer was given by the Sadducees, and they took a very conservative approach to scripture. They said, if it isn't in the law of Moses, it doesn't matter, it doesn't count, don't pay attention to it. The result of that was that they preserved the message that came down to them from Moses, but they were too rigid and would not budge on anything. They were not able to adapt to change. They wouldn't even consider words like the prophets Isaiah or Amos to be binding. Too rigid, it's gotta be in the law of Moses, that's it. Even so, that approach left them with 613 laws to remember and follow every day in order to quote unquote do God's will. So if you ask one of them, one of the Sadducees, what the will of God was, they would have said, well, here are 613 laws. Memorize them. Conservative. The other group, the Pharisees, took a different approach. To not become too rigid like the Sadducees, they were constantly interpreting the law. They were constantly adding additions and updates, if you will. These new interpretations were meant to fill in the gaps left by those 613 laws handed down from Moses. And the result was that their understanding of the will of God was even more complex than the Sadducees. So if you asked one of them what the will of God was, they would say, well, here are 613 laws, and here is a library of commentaries on those those laws. Memorize all of it. So both the Sadducees and the Pharisees believed the meaning of life flowed from the will of God and that the will of God could be discovered by intense, um, thorough, dedicated study of God's word. So perhaps a scribe or a priest might have that kind of time, the time to do all that kind of studying, but what about a fisherman? What about a homemaker? What about a farmer? Where were they supposed to find the time to do all that studying? How were they supposed to do God's will and still be able to take care of their families? They didn't have the time or the resources to learn all those laws. So the common people were still in need of an answer. The common people were still in need of an answer. I'm getting a little bit of feedback here. I'm not sure where our sound guy is. I'm going to bump that out a little bit. So the common people are still in need of an answer to this question. They don't have the time to memorize 613 laws plus the commentaries on that. And Jesus is very much aware of this concern. Again, Jesus grew up in a carpenter's home. So he's aware of the need of the common 
people needing an answer to this question, what is God's will? What is the meaning of life? And Jesus' way of addressing the problem is really on a collision course with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In verse 34 there, we see Jesus has already silenced the Sadducees, the conservatives, if you will. And we can imagine that the Pharisees, the liberals, are feeling threatened. And so before Jesus could do the same to them, they try to catch him off guard. They try to, to, to catch him off balance. So they got someone who knew the laws of Moses better than anyone else, and they asked this expert in the law to devise a question to try to, to, try to trip up Jesus. He's a lawyer, likely good at manipulating words, and he does come up with a great question. It was this. Of all the laws, Jesus, which is the greatest? You see, everybody had their favorite law, okay? And if Jesus didn't pick it, then they would be offended. But they could also get him for excluding all the others and only picking one. So they feel like they have Jesus trapped here. But Jesus cleverly and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this, I mean, in, in an initial reading of the text, you might not catch this, but this was a really radical response to this question. Jesus' response to this whole will of God discussion, I mean, it completely revolutionized it. So you know how miniaturization has revolutionized the electronics industry. Right? What, what used to be huge roomfuls of vacuum tubes and giant mega computers can now fit on the tiniest little computer chip, right? <coughs> so the ability to perform complex mathematical calculations now fits in the palm of your hand or in your shirt pocket. It's amazing. Essentially, this is what Jesus did to the will of God. He took volumes and volumes of law and commentary and put it in a few short, simple words. He put the will of the almighty God of the universe in a nutshell that you can carry around and look at anytime. You can even memorize. It's that short. So any homemaker, any fisherman could learn Jesus' answer and thereby know how to do the will of God, find meaning and purpose in life. They wouldn't need to go to the Sadducees and the Pharisees anymore to get them to explain what God's will was. And the best part about it was it didn't exclude all of the other laws that, were, that God had given to the people. In fact, it summed them all up. This double commandment was the law and the prophets in a nutshell. The law referring to the books of Moses, the prophets to the rest of the Old Testament. So the whole deal now is in a Reader's Digest condensed form that anybody can learn, that anybody can know. Love God, love your neighbor. It's as simple as that. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And our love for, as I talked with the, with the kiddos a little while ago, as we love God, he helps us and motivates us to love our neighbors. But let's be honest, some people are difficult to love, right? Some people are hard to love. I love um, what author C.W. Vanderberg once wrote. He wrote this, to love the whole world for me is no chore. My only real problem is my neighbor next door. I can relate to that. 
some people are just hard to love, right? But just think how much more bearable and enjoyable this life would be if all of us practiced love. Most businesses would benefit greatly if the boss truly loved his or her employees and they knew it. Most marriages would be happier if spouses heard and saw constant reminders that they were loved. Most families would be stronger and healthier if the parents constantly and lovingly affirmed their children. So this morning, I want us to think about two very important, very simple, but very important principles that can transform any relationship. So easy, simple, two-part sermon this morning. Point number one, when it comes to love, say it. When it comes to love, say it. We need to say it. We need to hear ourselves say it. Others need to hear us say it. We need to hear it said to us from others. When it comes to love, we need to say it. What's wrong with a general telling his troops he loves them before they go into battle together? Why doesn't a boss tell his or her employees he loves them? Why shouldn't a coach tell his or her players, I love you? When it comes to love, we need to say it. Second relationship transforming principle is this. When it comes to love, we need to show it. <laughs> love must not only be articulated, but also demonstrated. In, in the great love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's constantly reminding us love is, love does, love is not, love does not. When it comes to love, we need to show it. Good coaches high-five their players. Good husbands hug their wives. Good bosses give employees encouraging pats on the back. And good Christians hug each other, smile at each other, and laugh with each other. When it comes to love, we need to show it. God's love is unconditional and selfless. So if you're a boss, a manager, an employer, and as we were all reminded last week, we're all teachers. What are we teaching? Hopefully we're teaching love. If you're an employer, tell your employees that you love them and appreciate them for the work that they do. If you're an employee, do the same for your employers. Do the same for your boss. Let them, them, let them know how much you love and appreciate them. If you've been at odds with someone, go to that person. Affirm your love for him or her regardless of your differences. Love God and love your neighbor. When it comes to love, we need to show it. So what is the meaning of life for you? What is your reason for living? Is it to love God and love your neighbor? Or is it merely to avoid trouble and pain and heartache at all costs? Why did you get out of bed and come to church this morning? Is it out of a sense of duty, maybe to check something off a list? Or to express your love to God, to worship and enjoy the presence of God? The meaning of life is quite simple. Love God love your neighbor you can try to serve another purpose if you want but that meaning of life will not give your life any meaning the only way to find real and true meaning in life is to make jesus definition of the meaning to life your own there's a story told of a wealthy merchant who traveled throughout the mediterranean world looking for the apostle paul So this merchant encounters Timothy, who arranges a visit. Paul is at this time a prisoner in Rome, and the merchant stepping inside the prison cell, he's kind of surprised at 
the physical appearance of Paul, weak and very frail at this point, but whose sharp mind and charisma greatly impressed him. Uh, they spent hours talking together, and finally the merchant leaves with Paul's blessing and sees Timothy outside the prison and says, what is the secret of this man's power? I've never seen anything like this. And Timothy says, well, did you not guess? Paul is in love. And the merchant looks confused. What, what do you mean he's in love? Timothy says, Paul is in love with Jesus Christ. And the merchant says, is that all? And smiling, Timothy replies, sir, that is everything. To be in love with Jesus Christ perhaps truly is everything because love was at the heart of all that Jesus did. He healed the sick because he loved. He raised the dead because he loved. He preached the gospel of peace because he loved. He died and rose again because he loved. And he challenges us to follow him, <laughs> to love God and to love others. Speaking to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, Jesus said these words. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have to decide that you will live to love and glorify God first and foremost and love your neighbor secondly. It's a conscious commitment that all you do will be in service to God and others. Why do you get up in the morning? To love God and love your neighbor. Why do you go to work or go about your daily tasks? To love God and love your neighbor. If loving God and loving your neighbor is your reason for living, is your meaning of life, your life will have great meaning. God's love will define your actions and his light and goodness and hope will fill your life. We're gonna receive the communion meal together this morning and I'd like to invite those who are uh, assisting to come forward and prepare the elements. Before I read from the communion liturgy for us, um, just let me tell you that we uh, practice open communion in the Church of the Nazarene. You do not have to be a member of this local church. If you desire to follow Jesus, if you desire to, to love God and love your neighbor well, um, this meal is for you. We need this meal. This meal helps us. We repeatedly take this meal because it helps us to love God and love others well. This is, this is fuel for the long journey. So we do this often. So let me read from the communion liturgy as the servers be prepare for the meal. The communion supper instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a sacrament which proclaims his life, his sufferings, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit. It is to be, it is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. We come to the table that we may be renewed in life and salvation and be made one by the Spirit. In unity with the church, we confess our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, 
Christ will come again. And so we pray. Let me read this prayer for us this morning. Holy God, we gather at this your table in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples, and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So as we gather together, just give me, let me give you a word of instruction. If you could exit by the outside aisles and return to the center aisles, please hold the elements in your hand and we will all partake together. So please stand and come forward and receive the elements this morning. body of Christ broken for you. Let's eat together and be thankful. The blood of Christ shed for you and for me for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink together and be thankful. Father, we thank you for these gifts. We thank you for the gift and example of your son. Father, help us to love you and love others well for your sake and your glory and your honor. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.